recording. <laughs> Where are we at? Ten past. All right, we can make this work. This, we might have a blown microphone. That might be it. Are we recording? Yeah, so as I keep yapping, people are, people are going to open this video and be like, let's check out this Grace and Truth Ministries. And be like, what in the world is that? <clears throat> have you ever tried to love something or someone that you couldn't? Uh huh. Either you know that you should have loved them or should love them, or the situation calls for it and you know that you should, but there's just no way that you can make yourself love something that you don't love. Um, and that's why we uh, must understand that love, which is our subject, which is God's love goes deeper than our will. We cannot will ourselves to love. We cannot love because we just want to or we wish to any more than we can make something that tastes sweet taste bitter. Still, though, God commands it. Therefore, the command to love is not like the command to not steal or not lie. You may want to steal, but you can force yourself not to. When it comes to things like love, hope, faith, uh, these things that exist within our hearts, we cannot force ourselves to do them. So, we still have to follow the command. What would be helpful is if we were given a nature that uh, instinctively loved. That would be really helpful. Just imagine if you loved what you always should all the time because you instinctively did so. And God has done this, actually. And today we're going to explore how God has done just this and how God is going to make that instinct grow. As we understand, instinct doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do it. What God is after in our lives is actual living the Christian life, not just being spectators of it and knowing about it. We are to actually do so. Every Christian has the instinct within them, the drive, if you will, to love like God loves. But not every Christian does so because that instinct doesn't grow into maturity. God has a plan for our instinctual desire for goodness and love and righteousness and all those things to grow. And when it grows, it becomes a reality in our lives and it makes for the best life. Let's pray. Pray for our sound system, for sound people, <laughs> sound mind, body, and sound. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Let's pray for our understanding, more, more, much more importantly, our understanding of God's love is, as we continue to pursue it, which takes humility. It takes a, a, a listening capacity to truly want to know, because part of this is pursuing love, uh, which is uh, something that we have to decide to do and maintain. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that comes by means of your word, the truth of your love, the love of your love, which is the most astounding of things. 
that you have, out of your own nature, because you are love, you have given to the world, manifested in Jesus Christ, your Son. His sacrifice, His willing to do, willingness to do your will at the cost of everything concerning Himself, His very life, is the depiction of your love to the utmost. And then you command us to do the same, your children. And um, we, Father, as you know, we struggle with it. We want to compromise it. We want to lessen it. We want to ignore it at times. And yet, Father, you persist with us and pursue us with your love and grace and mercy. We thank you for forgiveness because we fail at this so often. Yet, Father, you have made us to pursue it, and we do. So we ask for your gracious patience yet again, but also to impress upon each of our hearts here today and all who would listen to this the greater reality of what your love is. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Love comes from the heart. Doesn't that sound like a Hallmark card? It's actually quite biblical. Love does come from the heart. It exists in the heart, as Paul writes. But not just love. All that goes with it. We could say that they're all one. Take, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit. It starts off with love, moves to joy, and then peace. Things like faith, hope, love, joy, peace are all the substance of the inner heart. Not the thing beating in your chest, but the heart that the Bible depicts as really central control of the human conscience, of our will, our desire, uh, what we consider good and bad, what we true, where our knowledge base is. Uh, other words that are used fairly interchangeably with heart is spirit and soul. And oftentimes, too, the soul is a reference in the Bible to our lives, but meaning that our inner lives, and it all taken together, including the brain or the mind, uh, takes our whole inner being, and that really is the determination of our lives, and really not, not the circumstances of our lives, because we can't control anything, but how we live it. None of them can be willed. And say, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> When's the last time you were in a really bad mood and you're like, all right, I'm going to make myself happy. And I, I love when I think I have success with it for about 10 seconds and then I realize, no, I'm still bitter and angry. Uh, <clears throat> none of them can be willed into existence. Every one of them, and love is our subject, has to be created in us. And it is created by God is given to us at the moment of salvation. But when we think about that, we think of love, maybe we think of love as kind of be like a virus, like God injected you with something, and it's like a real thing just kind of flowing through your circulatory system. It's not that. Because we know that God is love, and what God gives us is himself. Uh, and in that is depicted also, we say, well, God indwells us, but yeah, true, but what about us? But we find in the scripture that God has made us brand new creatures. And that creature, that new creation that God has made of the human race, which he promised he would do in the Old Testament, that he would make new men, new women, who would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who would have soft hearts, meaning 
not soft heads, but soft, soft uh, in the ability of humility and, and uh, responsiveness to God, uh, that they would be full of knowledge and worship God and they would be with God. They would be this new spiritual being. Well, here you are. That's what we are. And God has made us to be that. That new nature, not new nature, but new you, is love. Now, you're not God, but God is love and he's given you a divine nature, his nature. The mechanics of that are impossible for us to unravel, but we do know that God has made us new in the image of Christ in Colossians 3.10. And that image of Christ needs to be renewed day by day. And it's renewed by God's word, by God's knowledge. And, and simultaneously with that, the obedience to those things, to the knowledge of the word of God, obedience to it. And we find ourselves not gaining really any new nature, but having the nature that we always had from salvation. Uh, the moment we believed in Christ, we were baptized by the Holy Spirit, entered into union with Christ, imputed with righteousness, and made brand new. Now, a great image for this is a seed. And this is used in the scripture, the seed. It's a great way to see it. So let's go to 1 John chapter 3. So first we have to ask, you know, what is the seed? Because we want to know, and that's what today is about. What is love? What is God's love? How do I get it? And how do I live it? And uh, the Bible's very clear about this. And it's very helpful, uh, you know, to know, you know, first and foremost, can I love with God's love? And every believer has been designed for it. You know, you're made for it. You're instinctively made for it. So what is the seed of God's agape love? The seed is depicted in the word of God as the Lord himself. Jesus said in John 12, the seed goes into the ground and dies and it'll bear much fruit. He describes himself as a seed. The seed is also the word of God in the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, linking ourselves to God's love was in many cases it's put on soil that where it didn't grow. It was side of the road and birds took it away and the thorns and the thistles in the shallow ground and it didn't grow. And yet God sowed it. But then there was the seed that fell upon the good soil. And the good soil is the believer who responds in faith. It's very clear there. The believer who responds in faith takes the word of God and from that the seed grows. The word of God grows. <clears throat> so the seed is the Lord. The seed is the word of God. The seed is also the divine nature of all new creatures, of all new people that are what we mean by that is a born-again believer. John writes of this in 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. There was a a faction of false teachers that John is trying to refute that have invaded the churches who claim not to sin and who claim that lawlessness is not sin. And Paul is very, very, not Paul, sorry, John, is very clear here to say that, look, sin is lawlessness and vice versa. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Christ appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So in verse 5, 
John makes the case that Jesus is of a certain type. He is sinless, and he came not to do anything, well, to do many things, but one of the things that he did was to take away sin. Not to improve it or, you know, he's here, he came to just take it away. So, verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this very purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil is what? Sin. The Son of Man came to take away sin, so he came to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God, in verse 9, practices sin. This is a verse that always makes my throat get a little tight. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, that's why I came to this verse, is verse 9. His seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, despite the always the question marks that are running through our head probably every time we read this verse, what is clear uh, that we can't understand is that we're born of God, and that is equated with the fact that we are God's seed. God's seed abides in me. So I could say, well... You know, this physical body that I'm in right now is not going to be with me always, thank God. And so, but within me, there is this divine nature. And that divine nature is designed for sin or designed for not sin. And Paul makes, I keep calling him Paul, poor John. John makes the very clear distinction that those who are of the devil are those who pursue sin. Those who are of Christ are those who pursue righteousness. And then he makes a further distinction, verse 10, really summarizing the same distinction in verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And now from here, all the way through chapter 4, John is going to speak of God's love for us and our love of others. Now, notice in verse 10 that John equates the practice of righteousness is the one who loves his brother. So this righteousness that we become at salvation is actually hand in hand with love, just like it is in God. It shouldn't surprise us that God is love and God is righteousness. And so the two things should not actually be, you know, really, we separate them to study them out. But in actuality, they are of the same nature. And notice in the passage, well, first off, is John stressing that, you know, if you're not sinless, you're not a believer. Is he stressing that? It'd be a hard sell for this passage because back in chapter 1, verse 8, John said, if you claim you're sinless, you're a liar. And if you claim that you have no, verse 9, we confess our sins. And then in verse 10, if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar. You're sinners, guys. But... Here, he's making the distinction between those who are of the devil and those who are born of God. And those who are born of God are designed not to sin. That seed is not to sin. We're designed for righteousness and then to love the brethren. And they're not separate. This righteous living, of course, it would include the love of God, but it's 
you know, the, the foundation of it truly is the love of God. As Paul writes, the love of your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And if we go to the law and see all the things that God commanded Israel to do to their neighbors and even strangers and how to treat them, the love, the agape love of God would summarize it beautifully. And so love is what we're called to do. Because why? We're born of God. Now, if love were something other than the nature that we have, being born again from God, then, well, that would cause a big problem. But if we know and see, as is stated here, that being born of God makes us those who do love, just like God does. We're ready to do it. We're equipped to do it. In contrasting the children of God to those who are of the devil, uh, Wallace, a great Greek scholar, sees these present tenses. And this is what becomes a problem, not to get distracted with it, but the present tenses of do not sin, don't practice sin, you're not able to sin, he does not sin, are all really speaking of the nature, the nature of the believer who, by the way, we're all going to be sinless someday. And if we mature in this Christian life, we will sin far less because we've come to love the Lord more. Is love a progressive thing? Does the love of God increase? And absolutely it does. And Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commands. The more I love him, the more I want to keep his commands. The more I love him, the more I see the reason for the commands. And how actually they're not hindrances or burdens, but they're actually beautiful means of life. So the dispute between, you know, the John, who is the true apostle, and the false teachers, the whole reason for this letter is false teachers who have invaded the church, is not so much that God is righteous, because the false teachers do definitely acclaim that God is righteous. They actually claim themselves to be righteous. But it's not so much the righteousness of God. That's accepted by everybody. It is really the significance of the righteousness of God. What does the righteousness of God do? And that's where it gets interesting for us. All right, believer, you're righteous. And you're made to love like God. You're made for agape, made for it. God is love, right? We say that's why he loves. You have a divine nature. You are made for this. You're ready. You're made for it. In other words, in you, it's instinctual. So to be born of God, uh, meaning of God's seed, means to accept God's standard of conduct, which is righteousness, right? That we, uh, we accept it. We, whether you accept it or not, you're entered into it, you know. It's kind of it's like someone being accepted into a fancy boarding school, and then they show up at school that, you know, it's a strict place uh, where there's only certain behaviors allowed, and then you make your first infraction or say, I don't know, you stay out too late, you break curfew or something. Let's say it's the army, right? So you go to boot camp and you're like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm going to sleep in till 10. Could you, could you wake me up at 10? <laughs> As Leonard laughed. And, and it'd be like, um, no, that's not what we do here. 
There's a great, uh, um, what's the movie? Um, the one with Goldie Hawn, where she, she, gets, she runs away from her wedding day, and she, to get away from her bride, she runs and joins the army. Uh, Private Benjamin, Private Benjamin. And she's at boot camp, and she goes, she goes into the barracks, and she says, but there's no drapes on the windows. And the drill sergeant, if you remember, if you've seen the movie, the drill sergeant is excellent. And she's like, really? There are no, yeah, there are no drapes on the windows. And she goes, well, the sun will just come right in here at the crack of dawn. And it's like, oh, yeah, we didn't think of that. She said, I'll be up at the crack of dawn. She's like, yeah, right, that'll be a problem. <laughs> great, great flick. When, you're, when you join the family of God by faith in Christ, you're born of God. The standard of righteousness is on you, right? You're in the family. And that this, like, this is why God disciplines us. When we act out of line, God says, that's not what we do here. <laughs> that's not what the family does. We don't do that here. Thank God for his patience and graciousness. So... Um, Born of God is definitely to love now. Born of God is the necessary first step. The scripture tells us that we become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, right, especially in Romans. Romans 3.21, on and on and on, all the way through to Romans 9. Um, <clears throat> speak of the fact that we're justified by faith imputed with righteousness, that Abraham wasn't made righteous by the law, no one is made righteous by the law, the book of Galatians, uh, <clears throat> I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? I'm, that's the first step. If Christ lives in me, Christ is love, because God is love. Christ is the cross. You can't separate him from that act. It is him. And we have that in us. It is us now. Now, that's the first thing to accept. And believers who don't know, and there's a huge problem in Christianity, foundationally, is Christians don't know who God is. They don't know him because they don't know the scripture. And if you don't know the scripture, you don't know that this is not something that uh, you aspire to. It is you. It is you. So how do we get the instinct to become reality? And that, yes, we aspire to. The righteousness imputed to us is that seed. It is, I would say, part of the seed, as is agape love, because it is now you. And you have the instinct, like a moth to a flame. It's an instinct. I thought of a hound dog after smells. I, I thought of the lamest examples. I even wrote in my I even wrote in my notes right here. These examples are lame, but you know I'm thinking of in, what instinctualness in an animal leads it to pursue things, and we have this in us. This divine nature desires. Right? It, this is why you pursue it. It's beautiful because none of us can even take credit once. If you love the Word of God and you love the Lord and you really want to live the Christian life, you're ready to pat yourself on the back for those desires. The only, the only reason you have them is because God put them in you. He made you this way. But for us, there's the problem. 
Right? There's always a problem. <laughs> you know, why don't we do it? I say, okay, you know, end of story. We're made for love. Why don't we do it? <clears throat> Out of all the animal, animal, the animal kingdom has their instincts and they do what they do. And same with mankind. The unbeliever has an instinct and he does what he does. He does what he loves. All unbelievers do it. But the unbeliever has one nature. The Christian has two. Old man, old woman, new man. And in Galatians 5, they war with each other. Spirit wars with the flesh, the flesh with the spirit. We have to fight the good fight. Why? Because within us there's a nature that does not want to. And we have a world, we live in a world where it is run by the kingdom of darkness by Satan who is actively trying to get us to believe things that aren't true. And he's coding them. He's, he's disguising things that uh, are lovely, or seemingly lovely as God's love. And they're nothing, they have nothing to do with it. But say, and, and we are easily fooled into loving the wrong things. Christians are. We pursue and love the wrong things. And, and oftentimes, uh, we love things that we shouldn't, and, and we call it divine love. We call it Christianity. And Satan, that's Satan's ultimate goal, is to get us to think we're in the light when we're actually walking in darkness. Ultimately self-deceived. So, uh, for John here in his epistle, to be born of God and become a child of God means to accept God's standards for Christian conduct. And God's standards for Christian conduct is found in Christ. The, the God, God as a man. So look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Now, what happened was that these false teachers that John is dealing with actually live terrible lifestyles. These people, they're not believers. Unbelievers with false doctrines don't live well. They, they may try and present that, but in actuality, they don't love and, and onward. And that's what he says here. He says, look, if, and they're all claiming to know God. You know, we have, and they're actually claiming to have a secret knowledge of God that others don't have. But he says again in verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has, been true, has truly been perfected. Now, perfected there, teleos, is a word that would mean matured. That would be better there in that translation. That in him, the one who keeps his word, this is obedience. In obedience to... The commandments, love, is matured. All right. So we're back, we're back, really, to, we could say, the same old thing. I hate to say it, same old, but the same thing. Obedience and trust and faith. And absolutely, absolutely. But what we want to do today is, you know, how is obedience tied to love? Because anybody can be obedient, right? 
not anybody, but let's say that, you know, I'm told, you tell somebody, move from that point to that point, and they do it, you know. Obedience, you can tell a robot, right? We have robots now. Uh, you could tell a robot, you could program the machine to go where you want it to go, and it obeys you. And so we could say, all right, God, we're just going to follow you like a machine. And that's not what God is after. There's a connection between obedience and love. And love and faith, you know, and, and that's what obedience is. Faith says this is true and I must do it. You know, I, and, and I don't even know what the results are going to be when I do this, but I have to do it because it's God's will. That's what faith and obedience, sorry, that's what obedience really is. And it's based on faith. And love is what comes from me seeing how God's way really works. You know, and you can't separate God from his way. What God is and what he does are one and the same. That's not true of human beings, but it's always true of God. What he does and who he is is always absolutely unified. And when I see in my life his way, and I can't see the way unless I walk it. There's too many believers out there that are on the sidelines. They're observing. They've got their doctrine in their heads, and they've got all the points, and they have not walked the walk. They haven't laid down their lives. It's scary. I get it. I'm scared to do it too. But they're not laying down their lives. They're filling their heads with with various theologies and saying that this is the love of God. It's not. It's not the love of God. It's necessary. Knowledge is necessary. We see it here. We have come to know him, but we've come to know him, John says, when we know that we've come to know him, when we keep his commands. And keeping his commandments is faith in his way and doing that, doing whatever he tells me, whenever, regardless of the consequences that may come my way, I'm going to do the will of God. And so, whoever keeps, in verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so walk here means life, lifestyle, conduct, bringing it right back to Christ. If we know him, we keep his commands. If we do that, our love matures. And by walking as he walks, which is another way of saying that we obey. This is also tied to Christ by in the words of Christ himself in Matthew 5:46 through 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you or do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what more are you uh, what more are you <laughs> doing than others? Sorry. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 47, it says, if you greet your brothers only, what more? And that's where the sentence stops. That's why I've got the rest in italics. It's, that's that word parison, and it means, how are you extraordinary? And who are you? That's really what Jesus is getting at here. And who are you is right what we're getting at, what John is getting at. 
you are the seed, the divine new being that God promised thousands of years ago that came to fruition at Pentecost when the church began. And that's what we are. We're designed for this. How do we get the design, the instinctual ability to love, to become the reality of love, is we've got to know the Lord, we've got to obey the Lord, and then we've got to pursue it. We've got to pursue it. And the reason why we've got to pursue it is because we've got two natures, and one nature is going to try and stop the other. We've got a God of this world who has designed a system, a vast system, to trick us and deceive us and to get us to believe things that are not the love of God and call them the love of God. And uh, there's a whole bunch of opposition against us. And it's very easy to not pursue. It's easier to say, well, you know, and, and and fool myself into thinking that I'm doing this. And I'm doing nothing except thinking of myself pretty much all the time. I mean, nobody knows if I'm praying. Nobody knows if I really love. Only I do and God does. So as creatures have inherent behavior, and I use the moth to the flame picture here, as creatures have inherent behaviors, the new creature in Christ inherently agape loves others. And that's a fact. We're made for it. And so over and over again we see it. Where Paul tells us, John tells us, Peter tells us to do what you've been made to do. You are, how many times does Paul say, in Christ? You are in Christ. Now, he says, therefore, wherefore, walk in a manner worthy. You know, who called you? you know, you're called for this, meaning elected by this. God doesn't elect and not do anything. He, he does it. He makes it a reality. <clears throat> so we say, no, I don't. I don't instinctively do that. And I completely understand because I don't either. I have to be on this all the time, as do you. There's an alertness to this, which is a part of the pursuit. And we'll get to that. Um, But what is unique to us that other creatures don't have, even unbelieving humans, is two natures. You have two natures. So always in the cartoons and stuff, you had the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other, right? And and that's what, you know, everybody can identify with that. Everybody loves that because that's exactly, it's a good depiction of it. We have two natures within. They war with each other. Uh, The reason any believer does not love is because they don't know the Lord. Now, here, there's two reasons. For that moment, you've forgotten about the Lord completely. That quote I gave you yesterday from Dodds. It's very easy for us in a moment to forget the Lord. And and when so the example is Peter, you know, at the Lord's crucifixion, or really at his trial at Caiaphas's house, he's approached by these all three of them girls. Who come to him and say, "Hey, aren't you? Weren't you with him? Weren't you? You're a Galilean. You were with him." And he's, "I don't know him," right? And he denies the Lord three times. 
Peter's failure there is a failure of getting his eyes off the Lord. But Peter's failure is also not knowing enough just yet. Plus, Pentecost hasn't happened, so he's not indwelt by the Spirit yet either. Which, you know, there's something that we have to put into this study because the, the love of God is, is empowered in us by the Spirit of God. But, you know, there's no magic switch for me to turn on the Spirit. What, what is for me to do is to know the Lord. And knowing Him from the Scripture... But as I know him from the scripture, then I have to obey the scripture. Because when I obey the scripture, I'm actually doing what the scripture is. And doing it furthers my knowledge of it. If you're not not pursuing love to be that love towards others alertly, purposely, diligently, you're never going to know what God's love is. I don't care if you can define it from the Bible. You don't know it. This is to be lived. And knowledge is the beginning, but I have to put my faith in that. If I could say knowledge, you know, if I could say love is kind, I say, the Lord comes to me and says, tell me what love is. I say, I gotcha. Love is kind. What would he say in response? Go and do it. Go and do. That's the guy. What what are the great commandments? To love your neighbor, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, go and do it. And he's like, "Um, can we talk about who my neighbor is? Let's get that down first. And Jesus tells him a parable. I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is every single body, everybody out there. You know, go and do it. So we say, I don't. We have to know the Lord. And when we're dealing with somebody or something, and in that moment we forget the Lord and get our eyes on ourselves or our eyes on the circumstance or our eyes on the, per- on the person, bam, it comes out. The words that have no love behind them whatsoever, no spirit behind them whatsoever, no Holy Spirit, and no word of God behind them whatsoever. They were the breath of you. And all it did was damage. And to your own soul as well. Well, I'll do it. I, d- I, had, a, I had a real fall flat on my face a couple of days ago in that exact same situation. Out came the words. <laughs> they were not divinely wrought. And it caused, it caused damage, right? It caused harm. Now, if I, you know, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. You can't, you'd say that, well, you know, all right, you know, I hurt, I hurt you and I hurt them and I hurt them. So what? You know, I'm forgiven. We're forgiven. You know, move on. And if your, if your heart doesn't start to really feel, and you know, I'm not saying you're forgiven by the blood of Christ, right? End of story. But as if David writes in Psalm 51 of the broken and contrite heart, over breaking God's will, then you have to double. You have to check yourself to say, "Do you really love God's will? Because you are too. Because you love Him." So, I'm a believer, and I don't practice it. Welcome to the club. What do I got to do? 
And I would say, am I going to, you know, we'll see how fast, how far I go. <laughs> or we, yeah. Anyway, um, we can move on from that. Go to Philippians 1 9. If you are a believer, as to all believers, God's seed is in you, and therefore the nature of agape is in you. Right? It's there, it's ready to go. But how does it mature? How does it grow? Right? And that's what it's got to grow. It's got to grow. You've got to have the knowledge of God. And so here we see some great help here from, from Paul. There's other passages too, but within an hour we can't do them all. But this, this is good enough. This passage here will lead us, lead us home. Philippians 1.9 And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. That is, see that word real knowledge? That is just what Suzanne said. Epinosis. That's what's translated there. More in epinosis or real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Sincere means pure. That means that you're not divided in your heart. Blameless which means uh, not sinless, but of course uh, to means that the uh, you're not stained uh, on a continual basis by a lifestyle of sin until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So it's quite a bit here, but um, we want to focus here on the love that what? It says it abounds. Paul uses the word parasuo, which is the noun is what Jesus used. How are you extraordinary? If you just greet your friends and you only love those who love you, he uses this same word Jesus does, but he uses the noun. This is the verb. The verb means to abound or to excel. And it's actually, we've seen this already in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where Paul writes in 4.9, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And Paul could say, I'm the one who taught you it. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel parasuo or abound still more and so Paul says you're doing it great but I want more of it and so this shows us that love is a progressive thing the love for others that's what the focus of the New Testament is on is love for other people and this is what we're focusing on we have to keep that focus don't back away from that and say well I love God people eh if you, if you love God, you love your fellow man, and vice versa. So I can see plainly now, after working on this for a while, that I can see why the New Testament, at least in my opinion, would impress upon us, emphasize love for others. Because love for the magnificent God who saved you, that's a no-brainer. Love for those other people, big one is rice. <laughs> they ain't good. Good, neither are you. <laughs> right? I mean, who's who's easy to get along with? Who's the piece of cake out there? It's like hardly nobody. So, excel still more. That's abound, and that's used in a similar way. Um, 
And in our main passage, is it's a synonym. It's not the same Greek word, but it's the same. The love of each of you towards one another grows even greater. So we say the Thessalonians actually fulfilled what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, which was to excel still more, to abound. And then he says in 2 Thessalonians that from what we've heard, you've actually done this. Now, I want to say again, how long have the Thessalonians been saved? Paul started the church like, you know, by the time you write Second Thessalonians, it's less than a year. When he writes First Thessalonians, they've been saved. The church started like three, three months ago, four months ago. Tops. So while we're wondering, you know, we sit or we, I can't love you, I'm not mature enough. How long have you been a believer? About 30 years. <laughs> when are you going to get around to loving others? I don't know. Maybe another 30. Come back and see me in another 30 years. Uh, we're to get at this immediately. Immediately. Because why? We are made for it. The seed of love. I won't even say in you. It is you. You are a new creature in Christ. The old things have gone away. Behold, new things have come. Then, first, I look at Philippians 1.9 again. Just a couple of words to look at. How does the love abound? Still more and more in... Right Now, Paul gives us nice insight here into the abounding of love is in two areas here. Knowledge, real knowledge, epinosis knowledge, and discernment. And the knowledge would be, getting back to 1 John 2, we know that we know the Lord when we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments, His love is matured in us. And matured love is a love that abounds. So it's very similar. And so the knowledge would be here, the knowledge of Christ. And there is your tie-in to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can know the things of God or that we can know the things of Christ, which are the things of the Father. So by the Spirit of God, the knowledge of God becomes real and this grows our love. And we have to put a pin in that because we have to say, well, how does knowledge increase love? And then the second word is discernment. Discernment is, this word is only used here by Paul, this Greek word in the whole New Testament. And it's defined as the capacity to understand morality. It's the ability to sift through things and know what is true and know what is a lie. And so you can see how it would be tied to knowledge. If I have knowledge, real knowledge of the Lord, then I can discern when Satan or whatever, whoever, throws something at me that looks like it's true, but because I have true knowledge, I can discern it. I discern, no, that's not right. You know, this is presented to me as a way of love. And I say, well, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It's not worthy of the real knowledge of the Lord. So I can discern. And discerning is the ability to say that's true and that's a lie. Think about that. When Adam and the woman ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did they gain all the knowledge of good and evil? They gained zero. (laughs) 
what they gained was the ability to discern good and evil. And then they tried. <laughs> I can't imagine the fear in them. But they, they tried to, all right, what's good and what's evil? And they couldn't do it. Talk about being naked. That's naked. You know, they're just completely lost. They don't know what good and evil are. And now, as we have God's nature, we can. Now, what we have to add to the nature is the knowledge. We have to add that which comes from the Scripture so that we can discern. And then when he says that, one more word here is... I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that, and so that in these sentences are generally giving us a purpose. It's called a purpose clause. This is the result of all of this. Because my love is abounded in real knowledge and all discernment, I can approve the things that are excellent. And excellent is a great word. Um, it means to carry initially, means to carry something. Then, as it progressed, it came to move something from one place to another. So it makes sense. If I carry something, I move it from one place to another. And then it came to mean different. So if I take something and I move it over here, I'm separating it from something else. So the word came to mean different. And then it came to mean something that you do different to your own advantage. And ending with the definition of superior. So imagine you have this word that means to carry. I carry it away. I carry it away because it's different. I carry it away because it's different because it's better. And so this word excellent has within it all of that. And it has within it this idea that in the world there are superior things. And there are inferior things. And if I have love that is abounding in knowledge and discernment, I can know the superior things and say no to the inferior things. What a gift. God has given us that gift. So why, do, why does love need obedience, discernment, and knowledge? And there's a reason. If you're love, now love can be towards anything. And I can love something and say, well, that's the love of God. It might not be. There's a, there's a real, uh, the whole church has been invaded by the wrong kind of love, which is a humanistic love. And a humanistic love can say, you know, I'm going to do all these good things for you because it's going to build me up. That's not the reason. You know, love in the church has become sort of the chicken soup for the soul Bible, you know, whereas like I'm going to love you because it makes me feel good. What about when it doesn't make you feel good? What about when it truly stinks? When it's truly hard, when it's truly painful to do the will of God? What if Christ just did what made him feel good? We'd all be doomed. You know, this love is depicted, agape has its pinnacle at the cross of Christ. And so love needs knowledge and discernment so it can choose the things that are excellent, the superior things, because I can too easily love the wrong things. 
too easily. And that we don't want. What a, it's a waste of time loving the wrong stuff. Pursuing the wrong stuff. And so it's vital that we know and discern. So, and you know, you might say, well, all right, then I'm going to love all of these sinners. Aren't they inferior? Yes, they are. Their sin is, in, but you don't love the sin. God loved the world. He didn't love the sin and evil of the world. You know, so we hear, you know, you love the sinner, not the sin. That's true. That's true. But, uh, you know, we love, we lay down our lives, we give. And, you know, it's not just, you know, I'm going to give. And, and we are going to give. You discern this, right? As you discern what is what is going to help a person get from the inferior things to the superior things that are in Christ. And that's why you're given of your life. You know, Jesus didn't heal everybody. He didn't. He could have made everybody uber rich before he left the planet. He could have solved every economic and war wartime war problems. He could have solved everything in a in a minute. But he didn't do that. He let it go the way that it has gone. And all of us have a choice. And by us being able to pursue righteousness, to pursue love, to pursue faith, we can because we're made for it. Now we can give our love, not our love, sorry. Now we can give God's love to people in the pursuit of getting them to the gospel, to Christ, to the truth. And again, we remember what agape is because I can't say, well, you know, I've tried that on them and they keep saying no. Can you imagine if God did that to you? I said, uh, Jesus, give up on them. They keep saying no. When did God give up on Israel? All right, they do go into captivity, but it's a long time. All right, remember the judges? Remember we did the book of Judges years ago. It's like pre-flood two or something. You know, that's how we mark our our time here is by when the flood comes. But. Uh, you know, in the people mess up. Here comes the judge. They're like, yes, God will worship you. And then they mess up. And here comes the judge. And then came the kings. There's another bad king and another bad king and another bad king. How many years? They settle the land somewhere around 1300 B.C. They go into captivity in 700 B.C. Right? For centuries, God puts up with this. And then after he sends them into exile, he brings them back. And says, let's go at it again. And then they kill their Lord. <laughs> and then he says, you know what? I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm not going to break my promises to Israel. He's not going to break his promises to you. So when we, when we see this truth that we are to give and give to get people from the inferior, because we're able to discern it, they're not. They're not able to discern. They don't have true knowledge. They don't have discernment. They don't have love. They don't have love abounding in true knowledge and discernment. But we can discern the things that are excellent, the things that are superior. And we're trying to help them to see it so that they'll go to the things that are superior. And we can't now calculate and say, well, I think they will and they won't and they might and they won't. And then give our love accordingly or give our sacrifices accordingly. We must not do that. We must give to all just like God did. 
So how does first? Why can you love? Because God made you for it. First and foremost. How does it grow? Knowledge of Christ. Obedience to His commandments. And pursue it. Uh, we're out of time, but the pursue, uh, I'll just read it for you. In 1 Timothy 6.11, it says, But flee from these things, you man of God, writing to Timothy, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of that eternal life. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And your love will grow. The seed will grow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for um, helping us, Father, to see by your spirit, to discern your truth, to know who and what you are so that and and knowing that you have made us to be and in your nature we're not gods but you have made us new with your very nature and dwelt by you so that we can love and help us to see father how important this is how wonderful it will be when we instinctively and actively love all in the way that you do we ask in christ's name amen